chapter 9, 14 to 29, Jesus heals a boy possessed by an impure spirit. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed and, and one, with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him to the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help him. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to LLC. My name is Doug. I'm one of the pastors here at Lord's Love. I'm so glad I'm able to see you online. Uh, and thank you for joining us in our service this morning. Uh, as we get dive into the word, let's just start with a, I'll start with a short word of prayer. Uh, Father, I thank you, God, uh, for this morning. I thank you, God, for everyone that's joining us uh, as a family this morning to worship you and to hear from your word. Uh, wherever it is, God, that we're hearing from, uh, may you be with us. May your spirit be present and may you give us eyes to see, minds to comprehend, and hearts to understand your word this morning. Thank you, God. Uh, we get this privilege and opportunity uh, to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are starting a new sermon series. So if this is your first Sunday, uh, you came at a good time. Uh, we just ended uh, our last sermon series last week, uh, obviously last week, but we're starting a new one this week. It's going to be four weeks long. It's going to take us all the way through March. Uh, so I hope you can join us for the entire series. And we're calling it When We Unbelieve, uh, Coming Face to Face with Our Doubts. Uh, because if you're joining church, uh, coming to church for the first time, or you've been Christian for a long time, we all wrestle with doubts. We all wrestle uh, with fears. And the big idea I'm going to be preaching from this morning and what I'm going to be preaching on is uh, we fight our unbelief. We fight our unbelief, our doubts, and our fears, not by running away, but by facing our unbelief. But the first step of uh, uh, what happens when we unbelieve, when we're wrestling with our doubts and we're wrestling with our pain, we're wrestling with our fears, isn't to run away from it, but it's actually to face it straight on, as we'll learn in the text uh, today. 
My question for you as we start off is, uh, if you do call yourself a Christian, you consider yourself a Christian, or maybe you've been coming in and out of church, or someone shared with you the gospel a long time ago, some time ago, uh, my question for you is, how did your journey begin? How did, did your faith journey begin? Maybe it was a conversation someone had with you, maybe it was a family member, maybe you grew up in the church, I, I don't know. Uh, but for those of you that, that do consider yourself Christians, it, maybe you would consider the start of your faith as the, the moment where you made that prayer, uh, you made that confession where you believed uh, that Jesus is Lord and he is Savior, uh, and you believe that apart from him, there is no God, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nothing else uh, can save us, that salvation is found in Christ alone. Uh, maybe that's how it started, in that kind of confession. Yet, uh, from that moment onwards, all the way till now, uh, maybe in this moment, this right now, this morning, we face unbelief. Uh, we face doubt. We wrestle. It's not been all uphill, but it's been lots of hills and lots of valleys. Uh, have, you, have you been there before where we read scripture and you doubt God or we sin or do something that's not of God's will and, and we, uh, we start thinking we know what's best instead of God uh, acknowledging that God knows what's best. Uh, we struggle with questions of, about evil and, and pain in the world. Uh, we wrestle with what it means to believe and whether we really believe at the end of the day. Uh, maybe we were once faithful to God and we acknowledge him as our savior. We were once faithful, but now we're skeptical at best. Uh, we're not really sure who this God is anymore. And we've kind of wandered from our way. Or maybe on the other hand, maybe this would describe you. You followed faithfully, but you've been following blindly this whole time. Uh, you never ask questions. You don't really engage with your faith or ask questions or, or engage with God. Uh, you have always believed and one side of it, it's yes, we have a strong faith and a strong belief in God, so we don't question. But maybe on the other side, we don't question because we're afraid of what those questions would do to our faith. Uh, that we're scared of maybe our faith can't handle the weight of the questions that we're asking. Does anyone relate? Uh, has anyone been there before? Because I definitely have. Uh, we have these moments of faith, uh, these, these crises of faith. And perhaps for some of you, you're on the verge of potentially throwing in the towel altogether this morning and, and you're struggling along at best. And if that's you this morning, I want to say you're welcome. And this is very timely for you, that God has a message for you this morning. I want to say this too, that don't make the mistake of thinking what you know and believe about God as equating to a genuine faith of God. Uh, after all, when we read in scripture, we see that even the demons, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later, even the demons believe, they, they, demons believe in Jesus and they shudder. Uh, I, I like this quote from Barnabas, Barnabas Piper, and yes, he's the son of John Piper. Um, he writes in his book, Help My Unbelief, faith is what differentiates a Christian from a demon. I love that. Faith is what differentiates us. Uh, from a demon like demons know and know that there's a God have head knowledge about God but what separates us uh, is faith so it's not really a matter of having knowledge about Jesus and we might say we believe in Jesus but maybe our lives lack the conviction that comes from this belief and we see others who are passionate on fire and we read the scripture how there's this passion and fire and and conviction that comes from believing in God but maybe we lack that that's not the experience that that we have and we grew up in the faith, knowing that our salvation is in Christ alone. But actually, maybe deep down, we think that if we build up enough knowledge, that will save us as well. That we're going to save up for that rainy day. And one day, that, that knowledge is going to save us. 
then that crisis hits. That faith moment hits us where what we know doesn't align with what we're experiencing. And that's when life seems to go off the rails. Then we start thinking, you start doubting all the way back to the moment where you first accepted Jesus and you start thinking, did I really believe? Was any of this real? See, I, I've been there before and if you know my story, you know, grow, you know, I came to faith in my teens and it was good going to church and being with fellowship and, and loving God's people and being loved by others. I thought baseball was going to be my career, but I got injured. And then that's the start of my crisis where I'm like, God, I thought you had good things planned for me. And I thought this was what you had planned for me. So why isn't it working out? Uh, then there are other moments, uh, like not getting to university after quite a few applications. I'm like, God, like you really must be hating me right now. Uh, even to this moment where the certain times of ministries where things aren't going the way that I thought they would be going. And I'm like, God, like, what, what are you doing here? What are you really doing behind the scenes. And some of you have experienced way worse things in life uh, than what I've, I've just explained. And I like what Charles Stanley says in his book, uh, When Faith Wavers, he offers two reasons why believers doubt, even though they might know the power of God. He says this, uh, one reason we're so prone to doubt is that we fail to see God at work in our circumstances. We asked and nothing happened. But the Lord is not about cosmic, uh, not some cosmic bellhop who jumps in response to our requests. He sees the past, present, and future and knows the right time for every answer. His invisible hand is already at work on our behalf, arranging situations to accomplish his will, opening hearts and preparing us to receive what he wants to give. And secondly, another cause for uncertainty is ignorance. If we don't know God's ways, we will be disappointed in his response. All too often, our prayers are accompanied by expectations of how he will work. When he fails to intervene according to our timetable, our anticipated method, we start to doubt. But placing our faith in the Lord and trusting in his good and perfect ways gives us stability as we wait for his answer. And here's the thing, this morning, maybe you're in one or both of these camps that there's a certain, uh, we're lacking certain understanding of who God is, and maybe we're not seeing God in our lives. But even though that's where you might be today, that doesn't have to be where you stay. You see the disciples, they had a crisis of faith moment too, as Sarah read for us in, in Mark chapter nine. Uh, just before this passage, uh, if you have an opportunity, uh, read before for this uh, later on. Uh, just before the passage we're, we're in, we see how Peter, James, and John, they're up on the mountain with Jesus. Everything is good. They say some, Peter says something like, I want to build a tent for, for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus so they can stay on the mountain forever. And then they come down from this great mountain moment and see the nine other disciples left down the valley below. And you see this chaotic scene where the, the nine disciples are surrounded by a crowd of people. They're laughing at them, mocking at them, saying that, who are you really? Aren't you followers of Jesus? Like, where's your power? Where's your faith? And they're being ridiculed by the crowd. And just pause right there. Just a, a thought for us this morning is that being on the mountaintop moments with God is good, but life isn't made up of those mountaintop moments. That God never intended for us to stay on top of the mountain. That the mountaintop moments are good, but we're meant to live in the valley below. And that's where life often happens. But in order for us to fight our unbelief, I've been saying we need to face our unbelief. And the first thing we see here in the text is that we need to face our unbelief with Jesus. We need to face our unbelief with Jesus. Uh, what do we read here in Mark 9? 
14 to 15, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were what? Overwhelmed, overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet them. So we face our disbelief or unbelief, our lack of faith maybe uh, with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a starting point. Um, amazement and wonder uh, at who? Who is it that they saw here? Uh, it was Jesus, right? It was Jesus that, that they saw. And we learn right here that we need to face our unbelief with Jesus. And that has to be the starting point because the atmosphere and the situation shifts with the presence of Jesus. Without him saying anything, without him doing anything, simply with his presence in the situation, it shifts an entire atmosphere. Situations change when Jesus walks into the room. The atmosphere of your situation, the atmosphere of whatever it is that you're going through or have gone through, it shifts and it changes with the presence of Jesus. And what we notice here in the first couple of verses is that amazement is the right response. Amazement is often the response when they see Jesus. Uh, but we're encouraged here that we can't stay there. We can't stay in the amazement uh, portion of our, of our relationship with Jesus. They, they weren't just greeting Jesus. The language tells us that it was a repetitive action. Uh, of they kept on greeting Jesus. And one commentator puts it that they hailed Jesus one after another. But biblically speaking, people don't stay in this phase very long, this amazement phase. People don't stay in this amazement phase very long. They either move on to disbelief, unbelief, or they move on to faith. They move on to believing in this Jesus. And for us this morning, we, as we face, uh, as Jesus comes into our situation, we can't just stay in the amazement phase. And maybe many of us this morning, we have been stuck in this amazement phase. Wow, look at Jesus. He's a great person. He's amazing. Wow. Yay. You know, I have Jesus <laughs> in my life, but actually have we put our faith in him? Have we, have we believed in him? Do we understand who this Jesus is? And Jesus goes on by asking disciples as he sees this chaotic scene, he says in verse 16, what are you arguing with them about? He asked a man in the crowd answered teacher. I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. All right, we face our unbelief with Jesus, not with anyone else. See, there's something very significant here. Though God uses people, we're not Jesus. I know that sounds kind of simple, but when though God uses people, uh, they're not Jesus. Uh, our role is to bring people to Jesus. But here, the disciples seem to be trying to do everything on their own. You know, Jesus and the other three disciples are up on the mountaintop, so I guess we're off on our own. So we're going to try to do this on our own. But don't confuse Jesus' disciples with Jesus. Some of you today, this morning, have been hurt by the church. I've been hurt by people that call themselves Christians. But don't confuse Jesus' disciples with Jesus himself. Jesus is perfect, man is not. Yes, we're to reflect the image of Christ, but there's a big difference between reflecting the image of Christ and being Christ. We're not Christ. We're called to be the church and the church is meant to reflect Jesus and point people towards Jesus. And we see here that the father says, what I brought you, my son. And Jesus is like, did you really bring me your son? Like you, you, know, you brought your son to my disciples. But here we see that the people associate the disciples with Jesus. 
and you're saying, I brought you my son, I, I brought you and, 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 and they, they, could, they couldn't do anything. Like, how's that for their faith formation, right? Of the disciples. They're thinking everything is great. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Now, were they not only not able to cast out a demon, but they're in doubt of whether this Jesus is actually who he says he is and his, whether he has authority over all things around you. And people are mocking and laughing at them. So what else do you notice here? It's maybe the graphic imagery of the son's condition. And Mark is very careful here with his language. He's very careful and he's purposeful in connecting the spirit with medical, with the medical condition. Now, are all medical conditions spiritual? No, that's not what we're to read uh, from, from this text, nor is that what it's saying. But it is possible that some medical conditions are associated with the spiritual. See, Mark is making the case here that Jesus and his disciples are in what? Not just a physical fight, but more importantly, a spiritual one. Because they're trying to uh, work up and do things physically when this is a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual fight. And he says this uh, right after this to his disciples, you unbelieving generation, we see why. They didn't understand what was going on. He says this, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. See, you brought the boy to the disciples and that's okay. But they didn't understand because they're still learning. Their faith is still forming. But bring the boy to me. Bring the boy to Jesus because we need to face our unbelief with Jesus first. And he says, you unbelieving, you unbelieving generation. What does Jesus mean by this? Where is the unbelief? Where is the faltering faith exactly? Where is the doubt was it on themselves or was it uh, them doubting uh, themselves or them doubting Jesus and his authority? Was Jesus, who is Jesus even addressing here, right? Like, is he addressing the Pharisees, the crowd, the father that's speaking to him? Though when we read scripture, it's words for everyone and applies to everyone. I believe here that Jesus is specifically speaking to his disciples. That he's speaking to his disciples and they're, and he's saying, you disciples at this moment, you're faithless, unbelieving and disbelieving. Why? Because they were unbelieving because they thought they could actually do ministry without Jesus. They thought they could do what he has been called them to do without Jesus first, but we're to face our unbelief. We need Jesus in the situation. We need Jesus in our lives. And he's saying, you're unbelieving. You didn't see what I've been doing. The whole point of everything is to put your faith in me, not in what you can do, not in the situation, not in your own strength, but in, in me. So first we need to face our unbelief with Jesus. Second of all, face our unbelief by acknowledging our lack of faith. Has anyone tried to open a very stubborn jar before? I'm sure we've all been there, right? You know, a jam jar, a, I don't know, Korean sauce jar or some sort of whatever. Uh, it's been in the fridge for a while and you're trying to open it. And I had one of these moments, those end of last year, I was trying for the life of me to open this jar. I tried the cloth. I tried to warm it up. I tried, you know, all of the tricks, you know, in the book, right? And I couldn't, couldn't do it, couldn't do it. And Jess was like, just give it to me. Let me try. I'm like, no, 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 no. I can, I can do this. I can do this. Uh, finally, I admitted defeat and finally I passed it over. And of course, the first try, Jess opens it, right? Um, at that moment, I'm like, well, you know, I loosened it. You know, I did all these things. I set it up for you. Uh, you know, often with our faith, it's kind of like that. Instead of acknowledging our weakness, instead of acknowledging the lack of faith, we try to do it on our own. We try to open the jar by ourselves. Just saying, we can do it. We can do it. Like, we don't need anyone else. 
But another thing, besides face having Jesus in this situation, we need to acknowledge our lack of faith. We need to acknowledge our weakness. In verse twenty uh, to twenty-two, we read this. So they brought, uh, so they brought him, the boy. When the spirit saw Jesus and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, he fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, "How long has he been like this?" From childhood, he answered. Has been thrown, uh, has thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. A few thoughts here. Firstly, things got worse when the spirit saw Jesus. Right? You would think the spirit saw Jesus and it would have just ran away. Everything would have been fine and dandy at that point. But things got worse. And sometimes things do get worse before it gets better. But even if that happens, it doesn't mean Jesus isn't at work. It doesn't mean Jesus isn't present. And some of you might need to hear that this morning, that situation in your life. You're like, hey, I thought following Jesus means it's going to be good. I'm going to have these mountaintop moments. But often it might get worse in our eyes before it gets better. But that doesn't mean Jesus has left you and that Jesus isn't present. Secondly, what we also see here is that the, the devil, he, he doesn't discriminate who he victimizes. This has been happening since childhood, right, for this boy, as the father answers but also think that uh, we're to see something else here, that unbelief doesn't just happen. It kind of happens over time. There's been moment after moment of this before this faith crisis moment right here that we read in Mark chapter 9. That for some of us, uh, there's been situations that have been going on for a very long time that maybe we've been ignoring. And it leads to a very big crisis moment. But those big crisis moments don't just happen all of a sudden. It happens over time. Also, another question I have is, how does, does Jesus really not know? Like in verse 21, he says, how long has he been like this? Does Jesus really not know? You know, does Jesus, the all-knowing one, not know how long the boy has been suffering like this? I think there's more to it. I, I think it's not so, the answer isn't so much for Jesus, but the answer, the opportunity to answer is actually more so for the father. It's for the father to share his suffering how he, all the suffering that he and his son has been going through. It's a moment that Jesus gives the father as a moment where he's sharing what they've been going through. And Jesus is intently listening. See, Jesus is our savior. He's our savior, God. But Jesus is also a relating and listening God. Some of you feel like he's abandoned you. You feel like he's left you. You feel like he doesn't know. But Jesus is saying, how long has he been like this? How long have you been feeling like this, son and daughter, this morning? And he's waiting for you to answer. He's waiting for you to speak to him, waiting for you to share the pain and the struggles because he is a relating and a listening God. And we don't want to admit our weaknesses, just like I don't want to admit I can't open that jar. Uh, we don't want to admit our weaknesses, but Jesus says, come to me. I'm not going to put you to shame. I'm here. I'm here to relate with you, to listen to you, to understand you. And you also notice the, the, uh, the language that the father uses because there's a deep pain he says, take pity on who? On us and help us. Even though it was his son who was undergoing this medical and spiritual condition, they were suffering. The father's identifying himself with his son's suffering too. And here Jesus gives, them, gives him an opportunity to share and to speak his heart. What about the father's question here? The, fa the father's question of, if you can, if you can do anything, take pity on us and, and help us. And some commentators say that the father's asking is a way of indicating what the person is able to do. 
In other words, the re- what this reveals to us is, is actually what he believes about Jesus. The reason why he asks is because he does believe. Uh, follow along with this illustration. Uh, the reason why my son and daughter, Cohen and Ryan, ask me whether they can have a, whether they can have a snack is because they believe I have power to give them the snack, right? Like that's pretty straightforward. Whether I will or not in that moment, you know, that's up to the discretion. And usually I do uh, because I'm, uh, anyway. <laughs> uh, but, you know, like, so like the reason why they ask me is because they believe I have the power to do it. And same here, I, I, the same principle applies is that the father is asking because he does have, uh, he believes that Jesus has the power uh, to do it, to grant and to give, uh, uh, to save his his son, so it's actually asking isn't the problem. Many of us think that if we're uh, when we ask Jesus or we ask these kind of questions, is that's doubting and that's bad. Like that's that's not bad. Like ask asking isn't a bad thing. Asking we will find right. Jesus says that himself. We're meant to ask. It's actually the way in which we ask. When we ask and we're expecting an answer, that's actually faith. But if we're just asking, not wanting an answer, that's just challenging. And that's just undermining God. When we ask without wanting an answer, we ask not really believing that Jesus could do all things, uh, then that is undermining God. See, we're not meant to undermine God in our questions. In our questions, we're meant to seek understanding. We're meant to seek understanding, seek God and understand what he is saying and, and what he is speaking to in the situation. And the father in this passage is seeking understanding. Uh, notice the exchange afterwards in verse 23 if you can jesus said said jesus everything is possible for one who believes immediately the boy's father exclaimed i do believe help me overcome my unbelief i do believe help me overcome my unbelief i find it i I came across this story uh this week uh where in november 1837 uh, a distinguished british physicist uh, uh he proved mathematically with equations that no one could uh, could doubt or no one could question that a steamship couldn't sail from London to New York in one straight shot. Uh, he printed copies of this proof and they arrived at New York, uh, New York, uh, April 24th, 1838. But the only problem uh, was this, this document that proved that a ship couldn't make it just via steam all the way across was actually carried by a ship called Sirius which was the first ship to sail across the Atlantic by steam alone. Uh, that, that was the irony of, of it all. Like he math- mathematically proved that it could not happen. He proved everything, but the ship itself was the very proof that what he was written and what he believed wasn't in, in, in placed in the right, uh, right understanding. See, when Jesus is saying to the father, uh, how is not a matter of whether he can or not, that's not the question. It's not a matter of whether he can or not. According to our mathematical and all our calculations, all the human understanding, we think that certain things can't happen. But to Jesus, it's not a matter of whether he can or cannot. The question, he throws it back, is whether he believes. That he flips it around. It's not a matter of whether Jesus can do it or not. It's a, it's a question of whether he believes or not. So it doesn't matter if all your calculations add up or not. The question remains in our lives is, do we believe that Jesus can and that Jesus is present and Jesus is who he says he is? And faith is believing that Jesus can do it. And every moment I can, can do and, and can fulfill and be the person he says he is. In every moment where we unbelieve, hear this, every moment where we 
have the opportunity to unbelieve, it's actually met with a moment to believe. It's not, it's, it, we're not stuck in one choice or the other. It's, we have a choice. Every moment that leads to unbelief, we have a moment to believe as well. We have a moment where we can choose to believe and to press in and be like, God, you are who you say you are. And that's why Jesus talks about prayer at the end. He talks about prayer at the end. He says this kind can only come out by prayer because prayer is all about faith. Prayer is all about believing and asking in this God and believing that this is the God that can do all things. Whether he can or not, we leave that, whether he will or not, we leave that to him because he knows what is best. But prayer is all about faith. It's, it's, uh, turning to God in prayer is an act of faith by itself. And every time we pray, even though we're not really using the same words as the father here, we're really sharing the same heart behind what this father is saying. Every time we're praying, we're really saying, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. What do, I, what do I mean by this? Here's what's so amazing about the Father's confession. It's really a confession of me and you today. It's a confession of all believers from every age, from Jesus all the way to now. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Because as I started in the beginning, we all have fears and doubts and we wrestle with our understanding of who this God is. Now, is this Father trying to quantify his faith? as in he has faith, but it's not enough. We know it's not actually about the quantity of the faith. Uh, if you have faith, the smallest mustard seed, it can move mountains. So it's not about the quantities, whether it's present or not. And John Calvin, he suggests that the father's asking for Jesus to have patience on his little faith. Not that he has little faith, but to have patience on his little faith. And Calvin says, as our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. I'm going to read that again. As our faith is never perfect, it follows that we are partly unbelievers. Let's, let's modernize that a little bit. In fact, this is really key. It doesn't matter how long you've been Christian for, whether this is day one or you're, you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, or you've been Christian for a very, very long time. This is an important understanding. The more we believe and the more we grow in our faith, the more we cry, help my unbelief. I'm not sure if you understand what I just said there, what the text is saying. The more we grow in our faith, the more we understand about God, the more we actually cry out, help my unbelief. The more we know about our faith, the more we know how weak our faith is. The more we know about God and, and the more we, we know about our own faith and we grow in our understanding of him, the more we understand we need help and how, fall we short, uh, how, how short we fall of the glory of God. So we actually never stop asking questions. We never arrive on this side of heaven. We're often always asking and growing. And the more we grow, the more questions we actually have. And then in verse 25, we read this. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he, he said, I command you come out of him and never enter him again. So Jesus rebuked. Very specifically, I commanded the spirit that was specifically deaf, deaf and mute to leave. And I think that shows us uh, an example of how we are to pray for each other in a very specific way. But in verse 26, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out again. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Notice here. 
the imagery, the imagery of the death to life picture that we get. So things seem to get worse again, right? Jesus casts out the spirit, the spirit's shrieking and convulsing and the, and the boy is shaking violently. And then afterwards, it's all still as if he is dead. But read verse 27 again, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. Church, the situation might look dead. Your spiritual life might seem like it's dead. You might feel like death yourself, but Jesus is there. And the promise we get this morning is that he's going to take you by the hand and he's going to lift you up. And he's going to put you back on your feet. And that's what Jesus does because Jesus is there to help you stand and to help you walk and to help you experience new life again. And some of you have made that first step where Jesus has come into your life and maybe we're feeling like we're laying dead. But Jesus is still at work. Jesus is still at work in your life. And some of you are wrestling with your unbelief and it's okay to come to Jesus this morning with your unbelief, with your doubts and with your fears because Jesus can handle it. Jesus conquered death himself. And often for us, we want to handle it all on our own. We adopt the worry as our own worry. We question God's goodness. But this morning, the word says for us, as we face our unbelief, we fight our unbelief by facing our unbelief and we face it with Jesus and we face it by acknowledging our lack of faith. And all God wants to do this morning, morning is raise you back to life. That's what God has been doing behind the scenes the whole time. He's just been wanting to give you life. But some of you have been pulling your hands away. Some of you have been building up a wall of invulnerability and not acknowledging we need Jesus. And this morning is an opportunity for us to come to him again. And maybe perhaps the moments of greatest brokenness and greatest pain will be your greatest moments of formation as well. Greatest moments where you see God at work as you look back. And end this morning with another story. I've been on a trend of looking at expeditions and travel <laughs> and history around the world. Uh, there was an expedition that departed December 31st in 1857 down a certain section of the Colorado River led by Lieutenant Joseph Eaves. The purpose was to map the river and to do a, a hydrological survey. You can see why I would read something like that. Uh, maybe not many of you are interested, uh, but with him were geologists John Newberry and topographer Baron von Iglothstein, as well as chief of the Mojave people, uh, Chief Irataba. And after the months of this trip of him mapping out, of him describing uh, this part of the river, uh, in this dry and arid land, he says this in his report. Ours has been the first and doubtless, this is the lieutenant, ours has been the first and doubtless will be the last party of people that will ever visit this profitless locality. It seems intended that the Colorado River along the greater portion of its lonely and majestic way shall be forever unvisited and undisturbed. Now, what section is he talking about here? The section of the Colorado he's talking about here is actually the Grand Canyon, where he definitely was not the last person to visit it. In fact, every year, 5.9 million people go and to see that section that he is talking about. What he saw as dry and arid is actually beauty and majesty and glory and God at work over centuries and millions, over millions and millions and millions of years. And I want to leave that with you this morning as an encouragement that maybe there's some dryness in your life and you're facing moments of unbelief, but don't run away. Don't, don't, don't throw God out of the equation, but press into him and to ask him 
with your very real and genuine questions that you have, because God can handle it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that this morning you choose to meet us, even though we have unbelief and doubts. Father, in the moments that we fall away from you, God, you are gracious and you are good, and you've been there holding our hand. You've been there lifting us up. And Father, this morning, may you help us to realize the truth of that. And those of us, Lord, the people that are here this morning that are wrestling with our doubts, maybe it's been years of us wrestling with it without telling anyone. Maybe, God, this morning has been a lot of pain and suffering and that we're suffering on our, on our own. Father, this morning, I pray for healing. I pray for your presence. I pray, God, that you help us and give us courage to acknowledge our weakness and to come to you into the loving arms of the Father. God who does not shame us, but loves us. A God that's given us his all so that we can have new life. So I pray, Lord, this morning that we